One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What's up, everybody? It's Joe LaPuma. You are listening to the Complex Sneakers Podcast. As always, I am with my guys, Mr. Matt Welty. Here we are today. Yes, a lot of energy from you. I know this. you're excited about this one. Oh, okay. Take a swig, get the energy up, keep the energy up. And of course, my man, he has, what do you have, a purple crew neck on? This is an SNS fleece. Okay, SNS fleece, smiling ear to ear. As always, Mr. Brendan Dunn. How are you, buddy? I got to admit, I don't have a lot to smile about. Why? What happened now? I'm down bad, you guys. No, you're not. We're not gonna. No, you're not. You're da- You're up. If we are talking about something that we're going to get into very soon, <laughs> out of the three of us, you are the only one who's I'm, up. I'm, and, and, but go I'm ahead. What, what are you? What are you can down we, bad? Can we talk March Madness? Wait, down bad in gambling or down the team? The, <laughs> the, the, team? the school I went to, the University of Oregon, is doing well. Yeah, they got a virtual buy in their first round, and they they they, got they, they crushed in the second round. But but. In the gambling aspect, did you guys think Gonzaga was going to cover a 33-point spread? I don't know anything. That's a I, lot. I, I that's don't know lot. about I'm, that's, I'm very, that's, I, I've that's, never. That's way too much for uh, March Madness. You know, I only gambled in college on on a basketball game and like. Uh, you were point shaving, Joe? No, no, not. A, you knew somebody on the No, team? not UConn. And I, I, I put a bet in because like friends were doing it. I had no idea what I was doing. And then I lost money. And I remember like. I was going around collecting cans to like make up the debt. It wasn't even that much. I just like was like, oh man, I'm not coming out of pocket for this gambling debt. So I like cashed in cans and like you know went to Coinstar and stuff like that. And after that, that was like my how how many how many cans. You know that they have like beer cans in the lobby of every dorm. So oh, so you you were going out? You were going outside of the the local beta. Phi, whatever, and like grabbing, uh, gra- not frats, no, not <laughs> frats, but just like grabbing the the Sunday morning hall and just bringing it. Was to just the- trying to make up the the gambling debt to pay, and I was like, I'm not giving away this. And even like when you know, sometimes Atlantic City, like I don't gamble that much. So I- listen, listen, let me let me give you a little bit okay. of advice because okay. I think here's one here's one thing I learned from my my gambling mishap over the weekend. If you don't know both of the teams playing in the games and don't bet, but college, bet. like, yeah, I, I should have done a little, I didn't, I should have done a little more research, but it just sounded like, again, Gonzaga, the Gonzaga minus 33. You take that, right? Yeah, no. but college no, basketball, no college, ba- put, college basketball, on it. college basketball is super tough. 33 and there's so points? many upsets, Are you so many me? upsets. So, Wait, just to be clear, wealthy. I, I didn't take Gonzaga. I took the other team. I still don't know what oh, the other okay. team is, but I put some money on it, and I'm not going to say how much. 
I put on it, but I put too much on it. Okay. And we I woke up the next morning. I didn't watch the game. I woke up the next morning. I checked the score. And we yeah. lost. So now I'm, I'm, I've been trying to. I'm in this hole where I'm trying to bet myself out of it. Yes, and I'm, I'm holding back, but I'm happens. seeing all these enticing games, and I'm it, like, oh, I should. That's how like gambling addictions <laughs> happen. I know it's the uncut gems type thing. That's so, how it happens. Bro. You know what? What did little baby say on the Drake song? He said, "I lost a Ferrari, Las Vegas, Nevada. I woke up the next day and went harder." That's what I'm. That's okay. what I, how I would feel. You know what I mean? I'm trying to. Trying to. We have to clear that. Hopefully not. Do, do we have a way for me to earn this money back? Do you guys have any hustles or any anything that? I mean, any hustles? I might be selling Herbalife soon. I don't know. Do you have any? Uh, do you have any sneakers to sell? <laughs> I actually, you know what? That's been part of it. I'm like, I need to clear out some some some. You, you need to clear out all 19 pairs of dunks that you've hit on in the past two weeks. <laughs> Dunks, yeah, this guy going dunk crazy. Maybe, maybe mint an NFT of one of my mustaches. But let's talk about it. Saturday night, I plan a nice little evening with for myself. I I order an FNF pizza. We all know done. We've been. Mm -hmm. I talked to Adam Caparell. I go. I'm going to order from FNF. We're going to watch UConn. I feel good about this game. Mm -hmm. Terrible offensive performance. Couldn't make free throws. UConn out of the tournament and. It was just a tough one. It was a tough one. Adam Caparello, the Complex Sports Podcast. Another UConn alum. Another UConn alum. Took it harder than me, for sure. But it was it was tough. So I was riding a wave of basketball content this whole week, though, because Last Chance You. Did you guys see this? I don't oh, know. Oh, you is. guys got to watch it. Last Chance You on Netflix, the basketball season. Highly recommend. I binged it in like. That's not the Ben Affleck thing. No, I, I binged it in like two nights great characters uh i highly recommend it and then i was gonna ride it into the the march madness the yukon tournament mm -hmm. and then one night gone yukon out of it so now you know who i'm rooting for go ducks of course come on i'm gonna support that. their friends wealthy, wealthy tell us about the Rutgers journey Rutgers was awful they actually they won the first round they beat yep, and you were gloating on the text yes. chat yes well you were. it was it was it was exciting because Rutgers, as I'd met, previously mentioned, the men's basketball team notoriously very bad and hadn't won a hadn't won a tournament game in thirty something years. So they win and they beat uh, they beat Clemson, mm -hmm. and everyone's super excited. And then they go to play Houston, and they're up ten points in the second half. We think that we're going to win, and. Up like five with like a minute 40 to go. You think you're going to win and just played the worst basketball I had ever seen in what? my life down the stretch and blew the lead and lost. It's Were you devastated? They're, Houston's best player hurt his hip. And like I was like, okay. It's a lock. Like Rutgers <laughs> is going to win. And then like the yeah. guy comes back and like is like hobbling and hitting baskets. And I'm like, fuck. Yeah. But it wasn't meant to be in New Brunswick. Well, I'm, I'm glad you guys are behind the ducks now. And by the way, if anybody listening has a really hot betting tip for this next round to where I could maybe win my money back, this is the one time you're allowed to DM me. <laughs> or, or if you have a side hustle where I can make some money because I, I'm in the hole and I need this money back. Oh, okay. Yeah, I turned on that ducks game and it was, I saw literally, I was like, oh, I wonder if there's going to be a close game. I literally saw a steal, open break, dunk, and then another turnover and then an open three. I was like, this game's over. And those uniforms. What were they playing? What sneakers were they playing? And those Kyrie's or KD's? 
You know, actually, I don't, I wasn't paying much attention, and that's wow. embarrassing for me. Yeah, I thought for sure you knew, but okay. I'm, I'm sorry. The other the other thing I need to bring up and question Brendan about was his oh, no. uh, was his very uh, suspect <laughs> oh, yeah. dinner decision last night. I don't know if you saw oh, in the Slack. God. I did Listen. see it. So, so Brendan, on on your pasta journey, mm-hmm. you you decided to get a new quote unquote pasta sauce. It was in the it was in the grocery store with the pasta sauces. So he it ended was right up, there. He ended up getting what he thought was an Armenian pasta sauce, but it's more of like a spicy salsa. And <laughs> it, I don't, they call I, it red pesto on the wealthy. What is the stuff called? Do you remember? It, well, it, it the I guess people say the Turkish word for it's esme. And okay. it's like you'll you'll like spread it on bread and okay. eat it like in very minimal well, amounts. Well, pasta basically bread, right? Bro, come on. We were moving. We did like four steps forward, and now, <laughs> now we're five steps back. Come on, Joe. It it'd be like if he, it'd be like if he tried to like um, like what's that like the Italian stuff with like the crushed red peppers? That's like the really pungent sauce. You know what I mean? Like kind of like the Calabrese spread. Yeah, like that. He bought the Armenian equivalent to that and tried to make pasta to, with it. I was trying to understand your culture, dude. Uh, listen, it was in the sauce right next to the pasta stuff, and I figured this is fine. I'm going to put this on there. It had a fancy little label. I was like, let me spice it up. Let me get away from this since I'm all out of premium Pete's pasta yeah. sauce right now. Or oh, that, I was going to wonder. Let me, let me, I was wondering if you were switching thing. sides on premium Pete, but then you, yeah, you basically <laughs> took kind of like the Calabria hot hot pepper spread yeah. and, and tried to do it as a pasta sauce, which is a flag on the plate. So so we're not gonna. We're not, you know, it was an and, experimental move, and it didn't totally pan out for me. But you know what? I'm gonna redeem myself somehow. Did you guys get outside this weekend? It was beautiful out. The weather's I great. Did. I, I, I went did. outside. I went. I went to Soho. Got a Fredo Espresso at um, Ame, mm-hmm. and walked around a little bit. It was really nice to be out. Where did you guys go? I, I, I was outside eating ice cream. It felt good. It was nice out. Not like rear window hot, but it was nice enough to where I felt like I was owed some ice cream. So I did have. A Sunday on Saturday, then a couple ice cream bars on okay. Sunday. Welcome. I finally, I finally got rid of all of those sneakers in my apartment that I was telling you guys that I was planning on getting rid of. Oh, oh where'd you charitable where? donation? Charitable donation had a okay. had a had a friend of mine finally pick me up on the weekend because it was like it was eight trash bags full of sneakers and it's kind of like you can't just like walk to the local Salvation Army and drop that off by Somebody yourself. Somebody from the Cook Group scooped you in the Lambo truck. Uh, it was in, uh, it was actually in a Porsche truck. It was pretty nice. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. And then we dropped all of those off. How many pairs of shoes? Uh, eight bags. I would say probably seven pairs a bag. So okay. do the math. You um, do, me do the math. You do the math. I would probably 50, 60 pairs of shoes. There we go. <laughs> wow. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Um, and you dropped them off. At, I need that. You got to tell me where, where, uh, but I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to liquidate and I think I'm going to, uh, it's from the soul work with yep. them. I, I ran into him on the street the other day. Andre awesome. from, from the soul. Yeah. So definitely a good, a good initiative to support. I got to keep getting rid of shoes. Gotta, Absolutely. Gotta keep getting. Joe, I heard you were getting run up on in the street for your uh, Clot Air Max Ones quite a what few happened? times. Or the Clot Air Max Ones. The the original the, the original colorway ones. or the Yeah, the original colorway. colorway. And and they sent the the new one. So thank you so much for, for that one as well. God bless. Were they fogging up? It was a little hot and I noticed a little bit of fogginess at the top of the of the sneakers. So you gotta keep some Windex with you. But I will tell you People notice the sneakers, you know what I mean? Especially yeah. like in Soho. Like I'm sure you guys get that. Like I, I don't think I'm not going to say they notice the 
face first, especially in masks. But like the sneakers, they do a double take still. It's still that. Did they notice your face at Am I Leon Door? Uh, or were they playing yeah. games? I mean, I took a, I took <laughs> yeah. a, I, whatever. I, I, I said, I said hi to some people. That's what I would. That's you made what a phone call in. No, you no, 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 am. no, no. I waited in line. I waited in line. The line wasn't wasn't that long. But uh, you guys should definitely get an espresso from there. It's great. That four o'clock espresso on a Sunday afternoon out there. It's really, really good. And then you walk around. So it's good to feel warm weather in the city. Get outside. Have that sun shining and. The streets were were packed. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, yeah, it feels good, guys. By the way, I think when this comes out, or maybe the day after, it's going to be Air Max Day. Are we yes. celebrating Air Max Day at all? How are we celebrating, Joe? You hosting a, a party? Nope. Should I bring some dead stock pairs over and we can? Uh, nope. I sniff think the glue. I may wear Air Maxes Saturday. Uh huh. To my godson's birthday party. Who is? There's a there's a tangentially related. Okay. One of my godsons, Rudy Calderon of Yao Ming, yes, getting stolen seven okay. foot. <laughs> se- yes, yeah, of Yao Ming, of Yao Ming cardboard cutout, seven we foot seven. <laughs> so maybe I'll wear the clots again. To uh, yeah, we have a little birthday party gathering in Long Island. I I may attend. So and of course, as, nice. as I recently learned, um, the Godfather is an important uh, role in in any Italian family. Are you a Godfather? Oh Me, yes, no. okay. <laughs> yes, I'm an uncle it's... many times over, but I'm a three-time think... Godfather, guys. Wow, wow. part three. Yeah. Yes, Brendan, are you going to take a socially distanced sneaker circle photo? <laughs> wait, I, what? I, I don't. I don't think. I don't. Wait, what, I don't what, know. wait, wait. What? What I miss? You know, you're, just uh, you're hanging down. out. No, but are you, you hanging out with some the boys? No, it, it's a it's a joke. I actually did find on my Instagram page, Brendan, the first Air Max day. I remember. Oh, okay. I know com- what you're talking about. At the complex office. I remember. We took a sneaker circle photo. And I you believe... Ha- you had on Neon 95s. No, I didn't. No? No, I had on Skullpack Air Max 1s. Who had on the Neon 95s? Not sure, but you were wearing Air Max Burst. Burst, yeah. Burst. Leather Burst. I remember B-Fred, Brendan Frederick, who used to work at Complex, very earnestly asking me, who had the best pair in all the circle? And I was like, uh, it's probably me. But oh. somebody else, also somebody else had Neon 95s on. And I said, it's, it's either me or that person. I wonder who that was. Maybe it was Angel with the Neon 95s on. You I know, don't know. Wealthy, I know that in your voice, you it's a little shady when you bring up Air Max Day a little bit and the pictures. But let's be honest, <laughs> re- good releases have come out of Air Max Day. Consistently. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm not, I, I don't have any shady uh, thoughts on it. Um, at this time, I mean, it is should, a corporate holiday, right? You should be able to, you should yeah, be able to read. It is a made up corporate holiday. It's not a holiday. <laughs> it's not a holiday. You it's should a... be able to read my long form reported story on Air Max Day by the time. Yeah, but let's talk about, Liz, what we got to talk about. Uh, what are we the talking? footwear on FSR with the guavas. This guy had the guavas on. <laughs> you had the solar reds on. Wow. And then you left the tags on. I was like, what is going on here? Is this a trend that my boys kept me out of that we're, we're leaving the eBay tags on? But no. Uh, come up for you guys. And and yeah. good sneakers. Good sneakers. Hey, hey, that's what happens when you link up with the eBay authenticity guarantee. I would that's say what happens, man. They got some Brent, good shoes. Brendan, I, Brendan came up the most out of, why, out of all of us. Why? His his choice of footwear? What, what I think what you got... Out of the all three of our shoes, I think I can True red SB dunks. Yeah, to me that's like that. That's like a grail grail. Like that's something I, I it's wish a good I could have got. I have a pair of 
of I have a pair from eBay on the way for a shoot that I'm doing in a couple of weeks. I told you guys, I texted authenticity you guys. Authenticity guarantee? It, it's in the authenticity program. It's a pair of 1999. I won't say the shoe. I don't want to reveal it, but Ooh. yeah, 1999. You, you know what I realized actually. I am part of the program too because I just sold a pair of sneakers on eBay the other day as I've been struggling to dig myself out of this hole that I gambled myself into. And it turns out I have the authenticity guarantee badge on my seller account. So, wait, what does that mean? Maybe your sh- are my shoes going to be shipped to you? You're going to check them out and then ship them straight to- off the boat. Okay. Okay. I heard that in a movie. All right, let's get to it, guys. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Our guest on today's podcast has been at the nucleus of sneakers and streetwear since the 1980s. His worlds of skateboarding, punk rock, and hip-hop music first collided growing up in New York City and being front row at his family-owned Pandemonium Shop, a store that was one of a kind when it came to cool guy offerings. Spending both time at the store and around the subcultures of New York City, his father would trust him to attend fashion shows and put in buying orders even as a teenager. This served as informal training to lay the groundwork for his historic career. As the story goes, after meeting Sean Stussy at a trade show, the two linked up in New York and connected a group of like-minded people who had roots in hip-hop, graffiti, and clothing. Without an official title under the brand, he would take part in its organic marketing, giving away t-shirts, throwing parties, etc., and establishing Stussy as a name that couldn't be ignored in the 90s. Soon after, he was approached by Russell Simmons to start Fat Farm, and as that started to bubble, he would reconnect with his Stussy family to run creative direction and shape the brand's identity for over 14 years. His next stop was with Adidas, where he worked on collaborative projects with names like Nego, Pharrell, and Kanye West. And after that, he would join Converse under the Nike umbrella to work on projects ranging from Off-White and Fear of God to Undefeated in Neighborhood. For the last year, he's been back with the Three Stripes, leading global entertainment and partnership marketing. These were the hero moments, but trust, there's a ton of history in between we're going to get into today. It's our pleasure to welcome Paul Middleman to the Complex Sneakers Podcast. Welcome, Paul. Thank you for having me. How are you? I like what you said. Can we just end it with that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, we we, we have so much more to talk about. This is is somebody who's been around in this thing forever. Paul, Paul, I guess let's start in the 80s. Can you talk to us about what sneakers meant to you mid-1980s? Sorry, I just want to answer one thing to go back because I like to give everyone credit. 
at the fat farm days, it was obviously Eli and Ali Asha and myself that did it. And our friend Dominic that passed away. So it was a group and I just want to make sure that everyone's credited and Adidas. Now I work with Ian Ganoza kind of under him. I'm an external person helping with entertainment marketing, but I just like to respectfully level say it for the teams around me because at Adidas, there's quite a large entertainment and influencer marketing team, and I'm just there to support them these days. Of course, and Ian, a guy who's been around in this industry for a yeah. long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thank, I just wanted a level set because sometimes people are like, wow, dude, you don't do that. I do that. And then people get bummed <laughs> and get mean texts. <laughs> <I'll laughs> but thank you. You said it really well. So awesome. sorry, back to your question, please. All, all credit where it's due, of course. So take us take us back to the 1980s and talk to me about what sneakers meant to you around then. I know Chuck Taylor's for you, Sambas, Dunks. I mean, as a kid, I grew up like most kids, you know, sneakers are just what you wore around. And, you know, I remember wearing a pair of Chuck Taylors through all winters in New York. And somehow I survived with no frostbite. And then as I got a little bit more, let's say, some cash or something and looked out, uh, I I think when I really started buying shoes, it was a, there was an early pair of New Balance Worthies that were like the kind of most expensive white on white high tops that really spoke to me. I forgot Mm -hmm. the number, excuse me. So that was a big purchase. Then around that era, when I started kind of hanging out and rethinking my identity as a young adult, obviously superstars were around because you'd see Run DMC and you're like, wow, I want to wear Run DMC shoes. And then shortly after that, around 1985, I got super enamored with Patrick Ewing World Rivalries, mm-hmm. which was a personal shoe for myself and a lot of the Stussy tribe. And then about 86 happens and everything goes to Jordan 1s, which I couldn't afford at the time, but dunks weren't really selling that well. So we were actually able to buy them at VIM or Models and the bins. We had a nickname called bin shoes. They were just kind of tied together for 19 bucks. And then everything just kind of escalated. And that's where I really started thinking, I really like sneakers. Were you collecting at that point? Did you consider yourself a collector? I wouldn't say collecting, but, you know, keeping them as clean as possible and, you know, going to a Dr. J's or a kind of various on 42nd Street. There was this Korean spot that had everything behind plexiglass wrapped in shrink wrap. And you'd kind of go look at them and maybe two stores down was a record shop. So it was a lot of looking maybe in your mind you were collecting. Then if you made some cash, you'd buy a pair. I don't think I was really the collector, just wasn't really interested. In, I was more interested in wearing mm. And this is when you were skating and and in in the just parks, out. yeah, yeah, skating. You know, Washington Square Park, Washington Square Park, Thompson Square Park, Sheep's Meadow, just around the city. Obviously, Brooklyn Banks, and then obviously going out at night. So you kind of needed a sneaker that you could hang out in, but at night you could go out in. So you, you needed the one sneaker to do both. Then there was people collectively around that were much more involved in sneakers and collecting. But I think back then the collecting was a little bit early. Mm-hmm. Paul, I know you went to Japan very early on and have been back yes. you know, a million times ever since. But was that something that kind of formulated the idea of like rare or collectible sneakers in your head, seeing it over there? I think my first trip to Japan was 1990. And I was more interested, to tell you the truth, in Walkmans. Because I'd go to what Bit Camera. I'm sure if you've ever been to Japan, you've been to Bit Camera. Mm-hmm. Back then, it was just Walkmans everywhere. And I was like, wow. And then you'd bring them back, but they wouldn't work that well because the voltage was a little bit wrong and the battery was a little bit wrong, but they were just so cool. Uh, sneakers then were a little bit more like dead stock in Japan. So mm-hmm. they were all like that kind of Rose Bowl thing, like size 12s or, or 12s or 11s, like pumped up a little bit at the toe because they were kind of got wet or some shit. And uh, I think that, that but the idea of collecting to me wasn't really just sneakers. It was books, magazines, records, 
clothing, vintage clothing, information, you know, sharing stuff. I think sneakers then just became another thing to collect in a way. When do you think sneakers became a real part of your work? Because I feel like since the turn of the millennium, maybe your, your resume was focused in some way on sneakers, whether it's the stuff you've done at Adidas or I mm-hmm. think maybe earliest, the collaborative projects with Stussy. Is, is that when you feel like sneakers really were part of your work? I mean, I think I have to define it in twofold. Part of it was just a part of me. You know, I liked wearing sneakers and you had to have, you know, no different than that. You had to have something to roll up and you couldn't wear busted kicks. And then when we realized that you could make shoes, which was really the first uh, Stussy stuff was with Nike. And I was a little bit late to that because Fraser Cook and Michael Koppelman did the first Stussy, let's say, collaborative sneakers. Mm. Then we realized that you can talk to someone at Nike and be like, hey, you want to do something? And it was like that one plus one equals three. And the early stuff was just simply colors that we wanted to wear because, you know, back then shoes were more white in a color or sports mm-hmm. colors or teams colors. And then it was like, Hey, can we do a dunk in black or khaki? And it was like, wow, that's amazing. But it wasn't really that amazing. It's just something we all wanted to collectively wear. And now it seems quite normal because you know, shoes are every color. What was the first Stussy Nike project you worked on? I was around the dunk one. Frazier did a Hirachi, I believe the first Hirachi with Michael. Mm-hmm. Then there was a second Hirachi, but I'm not that clear how that happened. And then it just kind of kept on going. I mean, in a way, I think what Supreme is to Nike now is what Stussy was to Nike back mm-hmm. in the 90s. I, I much heard lower that, quantities. That James Jebbia had kind of pitched the idea on you guys doing the first dunk collaboration in 2001. Is you know, that there right? was or? a few people doing that. I think James was speaking to them. Michael was probably speaking to them. And I was speaking to a gentleman named Marcus. His last name slips my mind. And we had met up in Tokyo and he was running the Tokyo thing. So it was like everyone that met someone at Nike, like, hey, can we have a meeting? We really want to do a dunk. I'm not sure who really greenlit it in the end. Maybe Fraser would know. My history is not that perfect, but it was kind of everyone went at it. Then it was done and it was super fun. Do you remember the actual release of the shoe? Were, were you there on a retail level when they hit? Stores? I was not actually. I was, it was released in very small quantities at chapter stores. Mm. And I wasn't ever at the store at that point. I was either working or at home, but it was definitely a, a bit of a scene apparently. And you were a big dunk fan. I like you had tons of them. And I think you said that your favorite of all time was the Michigan dunk. Yes. So was the dunk a silhouette that you zeroed in on uh, to when you wanted to create something with, with Nike? I think it was always one of our top picks because the Jordan one was just unattainable. So a dunk seemed like, wow, that's really great. And it, it meant something because it was like it had a basketball thing. It had a sports thing. It had a, a bit of a rollover to skateboarding for the construction. So mm-hmm. it kind of hit every let's say it ticked every metaphoric box collectively. Mm. And a lot of people around New York, my friends were wearing dunks. It was like, I just kept on seeing them. They seemed very hard to obtain, but yes, by hands down the Michigan has always been my favorite one. Was, was Nike nervous at all about working with streetwear brands like Stussy when it first happened? Cause it was like the, the first they had ever done that. Do you remember any of that? I, I don't really think, well, I, I can't speak for all, but we had a, an interesting end because once we started meeting people at Nike, whether it was traveling or something, we started to just meet a few people. Then when Undefeated Up on Bray and obviously Stussy and Universe, it was a little bit of hub for all of us. I don't live that far away. Like late in the afternoon, I cruise over there just to meet up with the guys and talk and get a coffee. And then you'd wind up like Mark Parker and Sandy would be around because they were just interested in what was going on. Like you'd meet up with them and it was interesting because you got straight to the highest level of people 
that were very interested in the subcultures where at that point, I think Sandy was seeing, what do I do after football or, you know, or soccer, have you, what's happening with the street? What's happening with skate? How do we look at these influencers that they weren't called that? And at a similar time, I believe Mark and his team were traveling to Tokyo to see what's happening there. And they met up with Hiroshi and different people. So the senior leadership there, I think was very interested. I'm sure they were a bit neurotic to, give power over to quote-unquote non-designers but uh, i think it was a really smart move do you remember when you first met hiroshi fujiwara where was that i met him in the first trip i was in japan wow he, he, it was uh, i was with sean and we were having coffee and i didn't really know what i was doing i had no idea who Hiroshi was he gave us this green shirt with the g on it and he's like it's good enough it's like oh cool <laughs> green though I don't, I don't really want a green shirt but thanks anyway <laughs> and we've been friends ever since one of the interesting players in this, too, that you mentioned is Fraser Cook. Can, can you yes. talk to us a little bit about him? Because he was so instrumental, I think, early in the Stussy days, but also then transferring over to Nike and being the keeper of things culturally when it came to sneaker collaborations. Yeah, I mean, Fraser has a great capacity for conversation and translating external ideas to internal, let's say, maybe non-agreements or disalignments. And he's able to maneuver through a large world of people, whether it's in... Asia or Europe or North America and connect them in and also keep very honest conversations about, you know, yes, we can do this. I don't think we can do that. How can we do other things and just keep it going? So he's had a really interesting career. One of the projects that you guys got to work on was the Stussy uh, Boneyard mm -hmm. uh, collaboration. And I, and I remember reading about you guys talking about you wanted to kind of take the original inspiration from maybe a dunk or a Jordan collaboration, but make it like a little darker and put it into the skate world a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the idea was a group of us in the LA Stussy office. The, the Boneyards idea really came up with Rob Abeda because there's a spot in San Pedro called Boneyard, just kind of a pretty grimy, dirty surf spot that's a little bit gang influence, a little kind of uh, stuff in the water. It's kind of murky and dangerous. He came up with that and then we were like, oh, neighborhood, let's do a thing. And they were like, yeah, cool. As it was kind of clicking in, uh, Fraser was obviously involved to be like, hey, we're doing this thing. It's going to be quite good. Can we make a shoe? And I forgot what it was. It was the Terminator and a Blazer, I believe. Mm -hmm. I forgot what shoe they were pushing, but it was like one of those normal one, two things like, we really want you to do this shoe. And you're like, okay, but can we do that one too? And that was a kind of good uh, good levers to play. You got you got to meet their business initiatives, and then you got to do the shoe you wanted. And I actually completely forgot which one we wanted and which was their business initiative. And we just did it a bit. <laughs> You know, the colors were a bit more street. There were there were colors you'd seen years ago in old Jordans and things, obviously mostly black-based. And all the typography on it was either cartoon or Jack Rudy. So it kind of all came together really nicely. And then talk about the dunk and Sandy and working with Sandy and how that project came about and, and what it was like such a, like an iconic dunk and we've seen the reemergence. I even saw like your Instagram. You said, I wish Sandy was here to see the reemergence of the dunk. Talk about that project like stands up. I mean, the first dunk wasn't really done with Sandy, but it was done around it. He was obviously in the company. We didn't, I didn't have any one-to-one -one conversation on those shoes with him, but then watching the dunk come back and then obviously started popping up of, you know, the Brazil ones from I'm making this up. You might know better than me, but those were in Japan and this color was in Europe. So it was that, you know, shoes weren't global. Shoes were localized. So mm -hmm. it became this trade thing. And in a weird way, it also became the shoe of choice for the guys that, or, well, yeah, guys that worked at Supreme. 
Mm. And everyone's kind of coming in, hey, you got those, I'll flip you those. And it became the look, the shoe for that, quote unquote, downtown New York skater kid that's kind of into hip hop, mm. which, as we know, those were the early days of Supreme. And then at some point, someone figured out, you know, Nike and skate never really worked that well. Let's do this thing called SB, which I guess you can argue, was it a way to make skate shoes or was it a way to sell more dunks to other distribution channels or maybe all the above? Did you work on the Stussy SB dunk? I did not. That was uh, the, the cherry one. Yeah. I did not. Robbie Jeffers actually did that. He was the Stussy skate team manager. Were you involved at all in kind of bringing the project to Nike or? It no, just it just, it just happened kind of. We had some skaters that they wanted, like uh, Richard Mulder, uh, Scott mm-hmm. Johnston, Lance uh, Mountain, uh, Darcy's Keith, Danny Montoya. And it was a bit of just a trade off open dialogue. I have no idea, honestly, who was the contact point to that to initiate the project. But a few of our riders rode for them, and it just seemed like a symbiotic relationship. One of the one of the interesting things I think about too from around that period, I remember on your old blog, you writing about the Supreme Blazer release in 2006 and how it looked to you like such a huge moment in terms of hype and how much lining up there was and what people were really chasing after, whether it was the actual product or the feeling. Are you surprised sometimes at how much more extreme it's gotten since then? Because, again, this is your vantage point from 2006, talking about, wow, this thing is blown up and there's such a culture around this. But if you look at where we're at in 2021, it's so many degrees past that. I guess I'm not surprised. I think it's an interesting history. I was thinking about it a bit this morning when I knew that I was going to talk to you all. But, like, it's interesting if you think about where street we're starting. I guess it's a bit like rap or hip-hop, whatever you might want to call it. No one thought it would go anywhere. Then 20, 30, 40 years later, it's the biggest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, rappers are making billions of dollars selling brands to other people in a great way. Obviously, they sell tons of music. And at the same point, streetwear became this thing that no one thought would happen. And now it really influences luxury. Which I think that early Supreme Blazer was a, a little bit of a forefront of like, it was luxury, Mm-hmm. informed but it was still a sneaker did you ever feel like you were competing with supreme i know i know you're you're very connected with the brand from way back but just in terms of supreme is putting out nike projects and stussy's trying to put out nike projects too w- was there any friendly competition i think there's always friendly competition and i think when you look back it was a really great thing to work at stussy because that was the first brand let's say that did it so mm-hmm. it was really nice to kind of been given the keys to the car and learn so much from sean then as things start fizzling out as they do or not fizzling because i think stucy's in a good position again now but mm-hmm. things got a bit slower then you're like you know everyone that you work with is like oh stuff you all make's not that good this babe stuff's really good mm-hmm. you're like yeah it is really good i wish we did that but you can't mm-hmm. so it was like there's always a little bit of a speed bump in front of you to and that kind of you have to realize can you get past it or can you move over it metaphorically and then when supreme started no one knew what it would become because uh, a lot of the early Supreme clothing was actually made by Stussy because obviously James owned the Stussy store and he was friends with Frank. And so as James is figuring out how to start a clothing company, we kind of helped each other. And then Supreme just kind of goes glacial. Mm-hmm. And you could, you know, I think it was the right place, the right time, a really good team. James is just beyond driven and beyond an educated observer of cultures. So you just, I have to say you just can't keep up with them. So it's kind of useless to compare. It's kind of cool if you can just be second, third, or fourth in that race. 
And you always said there that you, you alluded to it just now, but you always said that there was that progression. Stussy to Bape to Supreme. And those three companies, basically the, the lineage of streetwear, how it started. And then you end up connecting with Nego and you guys kind of all three of you kind of all, all three brands kind of connect in this way that you guys started working together later in life. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I said I think we can all agree that Stussy was the the benchmark for what could be done, and that inspires lots of people. I, I think what Nigo did with Babe, there wouldn't be a Supreme. I mean, when you went to his stores and saw his product and the level of quality, nothing was like it at that point. I think we've all learned from each other, and then you know, Nigo goes on to do other things with his life and. I, I don't think James ever had a plan for Supreme to be is what it is now. I'm sure along the line, he's like, oh, I think this can get bigger and I'm really happy where it's going. But it'll be curious to see what the next one is, if there is a, if there is a next one. Excuse me. You say you meant you meet Nigo early on when he just founds or creates Bape. Do you remember seeing the Bapesta for the first time or him showing that to you, what your reaction was? No, I met him in Japan. He had an office and it was like around the time of early double taps, neighborhood, hectic, bounty hunter. Everyone's kind of had offices nearby in Arjuku. And everyone's starting to collect things. And you go into this guy Nigo's office, who I didn't meet till a little bit later because he's, you know, a bit younger than Hiroshi. And he has every Star Wars toy ever done mm-hmm. in amazing records and like <laughs> this drum set. And you start seeing these people collecting things to a level that you're like, I, I got some sneakers at home and a decent, some decent records. And you just see Nigo has his eye on the prize. And, you know, he goes from the first uh, nowhere store with Junior to open a Bape store. And each time you went, the stores redecorated and it a bit more interesting. And back then the product was more workwear. It was very Americana. Like their mm-hmm. take on a Wrangler, their take on a their take on a cowboy shirt or a Red Wings, and I think that was always his real love because you see it in the human made stuff he's doing now. Yeah, but then you know the babes to stuff. I wasn't really a fan to be honest with you because I'm I'm from New York. Sorry, it's like mm-hmm. we have Air Force Ones and Dunks. Like I don't. <laughs> I mean, I thought the colors were brilliant. I thought what he did was brilliant. I never owned a pair to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. And all I remember thinking was like, shouldn't Nike just hire this dude to do the Air Force Ones? Mm. I mean, when you went to see them, they mm. were brilliant. They were just a bit too much for me at that point in my life. You, you talk about work where I actually got a chance to visit his atelier and we filmed it. And the jacket, the Stussy jacket with the address that was on Carhartt, he basically was like, this was like, an. Uh, they were just putting Stussy on Carhartt jackets. And I think you recently posted it on Instagram. But it goes back to, he was into like, the first original Levi's denim jacket. And it seemed like he was really obsessed with workwear. When he would come to New York, were you guys seeing each other back then? I saw him the day he bought that jacket. We went to lunch. It was probably one of the first times I went to lunch with him. It was with some people also from Japan. They all spoke English. It's never really clear how much English Nigo knows, but I think he understands more than he leads on. But (laughs) I can can sit and talk about (laughs) Uh, yeah, you can sit and talk about Beatles songs, and you're like, yeah, yeah I really like that song. You're like, okay, so you kind of know some English. Uh, Hiroshi plays along a little bit better. I, he's completely fluent, but uh, right. Nigo, I think, is very conversational, but doesn't like to speak it. At least that's my assumption. But he seems to be able to listen to a conversation quite well. Uh, yeah, now I forgot the question. But so yeah, you go to, you go to he, lunch that day, he bought, he buys that jacket. Yeah, we were eating soba, and I was he was like my favorite jacket ever. And I was like, well, it's a pretty good jacket. And then it becomes like one of his most prized collection things. And as you said, you've been to that atelier, and I, I wouldn't say storage room. That would be diminishing of what it is, but right. it's insane what he has Crazy. in there. 
crazy. Every 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 inch you look, and it's a new thing. Uh, Ronald McDonald, the drum set, the Beatles drum set, these one of one of a kind Louis Vuitton record cases. But yeah, I remember that it, we spent anything like, you ask of. He's like, oh, hold on one second. Yes, yes. He's like, oh, aisle seven, row five. You're like, yes. here's all my troop jackets. You're like, oh wow. And then yeah. it just it just never ends. Yes, and he specifically pointed out that jacket to me, and was and that's one of his favorite ones. I think awesome. Paul, when you were hosting people like Hiroshi or, or Nigo in New York, were they interested in going around and seeing what the sneaker scene was like in the States at that time? It was a little bit later than sneakers when they first came. They were interested in obviously going to a restaurant, uh, you know, seeing some things, maybe meeting up other people, maybe buying some records or some books, seeing some art. But uh, I do have one really f- interesting story, and I hope I tell it right. It was probably around the time I was working at Fat Farm and started to make a bit of cash. I was shopping a bit mm-hmm. and I had just bought an Arcteryx jacket and Hiroshi and Hiroki were there. And I was like, oh, we, dude, we got to go to Paragon. There's these really insane new jackets. So we went up there, walked up as you do. And you walked upstairs and it was all like kind of moist and mildew as Paragon would be. And everyone's like, wow, these are insane, like articulated sleeves, seam sealed. And I think they each bought one or two and I maybe bought another one. And then that trip, in a way, kind of starts to inform their obsession with outdoor. Mm-hmm. And especially where Hiroki starts taking Visvim, because they were all starting to talk about that idea. But I just remember that one shopping experience in a very naive manner. And it was like, those jackets, which are still kind of the same today, but I think Arcteryx has had an interesting uh, lineage, because it kind of disappeared. Now it's back probably stronger than ever. But that language really is stuck of completely high-end technical outdoor wear that's i just i guess i think we'd all agree or we can disagree it's the most kind of popular thing in the world right now so good everyone loves outdoor you mentioned briefly right there you know you're working at fat farm kind of gloss over it a little bit but what was it like working with russell simmons at that point i know you like mentioned stories where he would just kind of let you borrow his rolls royce to like go run oh yeah he wants to get a photo shoot with Kimora, she was the model, and he's like, you can take my Rolls-Royce. So I didn't drive it, but my boss at the time drove it, and we drove Russell's Rolls-Royce to Long Island to do a photo shoot for Fat Farm. But he loved us. Was we, He lived upstairs above Time Cafe in on 4th Street, so he was always down there holding court. Def Jam was around the corner, and we would just always go for meetings there, and then it started just unpacking. But it was completely insane because they didn't know how to do a clothing company, and we didn't really know how. We just knew how to draw and do graphics. But I'll give Russell one thing. He was driven to make it work. Driven in a Rolls Royce. Yes. And it would have really been called fat. Russell actually wanted to make like cross colors, like, you know, crisscross backwards gel suits. Mm -hmm. And Ali Asha was adamant, like, no, it's all about Paula, Nautica, and Tommy right now. And that kind of shifted it to a a vernacular that was created. I mean, more just the clothing was simple. It was rugby's, polos, jeans. But the graphics then were very informed by polo in the northeast so it was interesting i want to i want to talk again about your your time at stussy do you remember a shift in the brand when sean left i mean he's been gone from from stussy operations for so so long was that a big moment for you personally well i think it was a big moment to me i didn't really realize it it was it was a re- kind of a real job it, they they were quite generous to me but what was nice is since it wasn't working that well there was such a void without sean they were really open to like letting people do things like as i said i was a bit more influenced on the northeast then so like you suddenly see stussy making things that might resonate towards that consumer 
And then obviously they listen to James and Eddie and Michael and the, their Japanese retailers of what's hot and what to make. So it was, it was kind of a clean slate again, except for, and it, it, back then I think we kind of avoided the Stussy nostalgia because mm-hmm. it got a little bit, it was so popular in the early nineties that it just got like, you know, that kind of thing of like, if you wear it, your younger brother or younger sister doesn't want to wear it. That's kind of where Stussy was. And then when the language kind of changed, it got popular again. Then we realized the old graphics and Sean's hand style were just a gold mine. And it was suddenly starting to get recycled, which gave the, the brand a new life. Did he ever give any feedback for like the sneaker projects you were working on with Susie in the 2000s? No, because by then he, Sean was off. You know, Sean re- retired in like 94. Yeah. So he was, you know, by the time the sneakers really started going, he had nothing to do with them. I want to get to Adidas, the, the Adidas run. And correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if this is like the first big Adidas trip, but you're in Berlin. And I think I, I saw that you go through a McDonald's drive through and you're with Nico, Pharrell, Loic, I believe. And you guys and are talking. And Toby, and you're talking about working together. Was that one of the first Adidas projects or like your first Adidas trips to, to Berlin or, or what? No, I was already living in Germany by then. Okay. Uh, Nigo was already signed. And that was basically one day Toby and myself were like, hey, what do you think of working with Nigo? I was like, sure. And it was signed. Mm-hmm. Uh, more of a formal thing. That was more of an inline kind of a thing. And they were there on a trip in Herzog. And I guess it was a bread and butter or something in Berlin. Okay. So we go up. I think we had some work to do during the day. And they're like, oh, Pharrell and Loik are here. You want to go see them? So like, yeah, sure, sure. Well, so we cruised over. It was part of a trade show kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. And uh, everyone's a bit jet lagged. And we were just hanging out talking. And we, we did wind up jumping in Pharrell's van. And we are at a McDonald's drive-thru. And we're kind of talking. He's like, hey, you know, I kind of want to get back into sneakers. What do you think? And I was like, oh, I don't know. That's above, kind of above my prey grade. But let me go ask. <laughs> So we had some McDonald's as you would in a drive-thru in Berlin because God knows there's nothing better to eat there. What, what are we ordering? <laughs> What's a McDonald's order? Uh, Royale cheese or something. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> something that's not metric or is metric or not metric. I'm just I probably had some fries in the coat, but all good. It was fun. Mm-hmm. And then there was a party for Mark Gonzalez, like kind of outdoor thing. And Pharrell's like, oh, I, I like that, dude. Let's go. So we went to the party and the Adidas people are like, well, why is Pharrell at our party? Like, in a good way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I spoke to my boss at the time. His name was Dirk. And I was like, I think Pharrell wants to work with us. What do you think? He's like, sounds good to me. Let's just talk about it on Monday. And at the same point, you have to step back a minute. That's when Kanye is talking to Adidas. Mm-hmm. Right around that same October, November, December of that year, which I guess is 14 or 15. Yeah. And uh, Herman Deiniger was the CMO at the point. And we start talking to him like, I want to say on Monday or Tuesday. And he's like, I'm like, can we do both? He's like, yeah, just sign both of them if, if we can. <laughs> I, the, the Kanye thing was already tracking. And I was like, can we have them both? And it was like, yeah, I think it would be great to have them both. And Herman kind of greenlit the whole thing. And around December, both Kanye and Pharrell were signed to Adidas. Wow. And you said Kanye was focused from the beginning on basketball sneakers. Is that true? Dude, depends what time of day it was. He was okay. focused on every. <laughs> Kanye was focused on everything all day. It just depends okay. what conversation you're in. He obviously liked basketball, but he was really focused on doing his 750. Okay. Uh, one day I'll find the pencil drawing on a napkin of it. And it looks kind of like the shoe. And he, 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 can you give us some insight when you saw it's a black line? It's, mm-hmm. it's this big on a napkin, like, you know, an inch. Mm-hmm. And it's has the strap and has the kind of line and has the, the ripple sole. And 
about two years later that people would need to figure out how to make it with them. But that's what was kind of interesting is Kanye was focused on new in a way, just I think due to his personality and drive, Pharrell got kind of a bit like he wasn't sure what he wanted to express. So it became like, hey, Stan Smiths are kind of cool or super color, superstar. And then the NMD came after that. So Kanye took a lot of those shoes were complicated to make. And the team did a really great job on it under Nick to make the 750 and then 350. And I think then Pharrell kind of got his voice. But it was interesting to watch a brand that was a little bit sleepy, kind of re. That was an interesting time between, you know, there was Nigo, there was Palace. Mm-hmm. Uh, the raft stuff, the Rick Owen stuff, like the Y3 stuff was kind of kicking in then. And to watch it kind of find its balance again. Because super fun. I I know you said when you went to Adidas that you weren't uh you know super knowledgeable on the on the no, brand. There's obviously that like early on pitch, early Stussy ad where you're wearing like the Ewing yeah. low tops, which is like an iconic moment in your career. But like what was it like going into a company like that, that you weren't like, you didn't know from top to bottom and then working on the collaborative projects. I think it's a really great thing. Cause I think sometimes when you fan out about things too close, you lose all, you're not objective anymore. You're just like, yeah, everything's great. And you're like, I don't know if everything's great. Not me there, but just in any job. So I think it's nice to not know everything. Also let your teams probably know more than you do. And then just try to guide what you can. Was it scary at all going from Stussy, which was still, I guess, kind of a independent or smaller operation by the time you left? Obviously, it's much bigger now, but you're going from a streetwear brand with guys that you kind of grew up with to this gigantic multinational sportswear brand. Was that was that a scary moment for you? I mean, I think scary is one word. I think clinically insane could be another word. I mean, <laughs> growing up in New York and moving to L.A., having quite a nice life, lots of friends and like, hey, going to move to Hertzo. You're like, well, where's that on the map? It's not. I don't know if you've all been there, but I, I guess if you have, you've realized it's kind of not the most central place in the world. Mm-hmm. But then you get there and it's really kind of idyllic and a nice place to live. And you can focus on work because you're not focused on all the things outside of work. So, yes, it was scary. It was a bit confusing. Uh, it's. It was also interesting to work for a company that's, uh, you know, we talk about diversity and things here. When you work for a company in southern or that part of Europe, there's people from all over the world working there. Mm-hmm. So you kind of fall into this very diverse atmosphere, but everyone's tracking against. I mean, I think they still have their problems with certain diversity things that they're working through. At least I hope they're working through them. But back then it was a really, you know, there's people from Asia, from Africa, from from the Near East, from the Far East, from Northern Europe, Southern Europe you know, Latin America, Southern America, North America. So it was kind of great just to meet other people with, with different ways of working and different ideas. The the most interesting part is so many of the people that work there are from that area and they've grown up just loving the brand. Mm-hmm. So they see nothing but being from that part of Germany or somewhere in Germany, like, and from their grade school on, they just worship the three stripes in a good way. But they also, you know, they talk about some shoes and you're like, Bro, no one's ever <laughs> seen that shoe in America. You have no to shatter this misconception that it's a yeah, classic. I'm, like, I'm sure it was really great in 1974 on the pitch in Hamburg you know, <laughs> where you all played football, but it's like, it's just not going to click over here. I'm sorry. They're like, yeah. but no, it, it has to. And you're like, okay, see if that works. <laughs> but the Do love you- for it's just like, oh my God, it's, it's another brown shoe with a different stripe and a gum sole that no one's ever heard of. 
not no, <laughs> I shouldn't say that. A, a lot of the people outside of Europe have never heard of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I love the kind of passion for it. Do you remember any, because you mentioned, you know, Palace, Raph Simmons, do you remember any sort of project that you tried to uh, push or pitch to Adidas that they weren't receptive to at first that ended up happening or not happening? I mean, Palace really wanted to do something with global football for obvious reasons, because they grew up in England and they love football. That took a long time to happen. I think I wasn't even there anymore, and it finally happened. They wanted to get to sport, but due to the way the brand was set up at the time of performance and style and originals, you just couldn't cross those lines that easily. The, the other secret project I wanted to do that was I thought it would be really fun if Raft did something called R3, mm. but that didn't go over too well. And I thought it was a no-brainer. What was what was the pushback on that? I, have, I don't remember. Just push this, you know, normal corporate pushback. But <laughs> yeah. I thought it was a sick idea. Whenever I talk to people now, I'm like, dude, that would have been sick. Yeah. Did you ever try and make a Stussy Adidas project happen? You know, Stussy was so in bed in a, you know, in their way with uh Nike. Of course it was asked, like, hey, can you call up Stussy? And you're like, oh, I, I know what the answer is gonna be. Yeah. And I don't think Stussy was I think there was a point that they entertained it, but then it was just like they have a good relationship and you know. I think in this world, when you're at that level of relationship, it's kind of hard to do two things at once. Yeah. But it's interesting because there was randomly a Sean Stussy Adidas superstar, obviously separate from the brand, but just a, a weird a weird project. That just never came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Were you, like you one involved pair in that somewhere. Was that during your tenure uh, there? Yes. It was the shoe that never happened. There was this weird, like, contractual thing that it just, I think also it wasn't clear of who owns the name, and obviously Sean didn't, so... Got you, got you. There were some hiccups on that project. And then, Paul, you end up going to Converse after after your time at um, at Adidas. And I think I, I was reading that uh, you got Tyler, the creator, to come to Converse because he wasn't happy. He was trying to make his own product. And then he was trying to make his own shoes. And a mutual friend of ours was like, Hey, our, our, my friend needs some help making shoes. Can you just talk to him? Forget even a deal. Can you just talk yeah. to him? And uh, myself and the head of entertainment marketing there, Tim, is really good friends with Chris Clancy, who's Tyler's manager. So I think I was sitting in my house one day. I was like, hey, what do you think of Tyler? He's like, dude, I'm just talking to Clancy. What do you think? We flew out to LA and started talking. He made these shoes that you know, a friend of a friend made, and they were just like, they were like vulcanized. He wasn't really happy that fans never gave him a contract. Mm-hmm. So we were like, hey, you know, if you ever happy just to talk you through the shoes and try to make them better for you. But if you ever want, we'd love to talk to you about Converse. And he's like, nah, you know, I'm a Vans guy. And I was like, yeah, I, I know. I knew this guy that was like a Nike guy and he went to Adidas and the world's fine. <laughs> and after talking and stuff, Tyler was like, yeah, I think it would be interesting. They gave him a very generous offer. Uh, they let him do what he wanted. And he was a really great partner and a good asset for the brand. And Tyler's such an interesting character too, because to me, he is so much a product of the culture that you helped create, or he's kind of the second generation, I feel like, of the streetwear thing that you were building in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know him at the early Odd Future days. I'd see him on Fairfax, just kind of cruising by to get a coffee, him and his, you know, the Odd Future kind of thing. And I, I was a bit older, and they were always really friendly. And then you just started seeing this thing happen, which, you know, was Odd Future and then kept on going. And then when you meet him and he's a bit older, he's like, he's really, really smart, really nice guy, super driven super focused and just also kind of remarkably funny kind of witty character to work with Mm -hmm. but he he knows what he wants he understands what he likes 
he won't be pushed into positions he doesn't want to be. And he just wants to make, you know, good music and good stuff and have fun. He, he does like having fun, which you can see in yeah. you know, the way he expresses himself and his, you know, camp flock and stuff. He's, he's honestly just like a big kid to work with. Yeah. But a very smart big kid. <laughs> working with all three of those. Well, let's, let's take Pharrell, Kanye and Tyler working with all three of those, you know, they're pillars of the, of the industry at this point. What is like the biggest difference in approach between them? Do you see a lot of similarities or were all three different situations, totally different from, from their personality standpoint? All different. I mean, the, the thing is they're all actually friends in different ways. I, I mm-hmm. don't know the exact, but Kanye and Pharrell are very close. I know mm-hmm. Tyler's friendly with Kanye. Obviously Tyler looks up to Pharrell. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I spent, I mean, Pharrell's a friend. He's a family friend, so mm-hmm. we speak. Um, I've known Loic since I started hanging out in New York, so wait, that's wait, wait. like I gotta, family. I gotta pause here because we have to tell the people who Loic is, because Loic is a very industry yes. name, and if you're not in the industry, you don't know who Loic is. So I, I want a brief aside on Loic. Are you going to do that, or should I do it? You should do it. He's your, he's your friend. I knew Loic ever since the '80s. Uh, he used to work at Soho Skates. He was. We always went out together to you know, let's say hip hop clubs or whatever, mm-hmm. but. Loic was quite interesting. His parents, he grew up in Soho and his parents had a, a vin, not vintage, but a French antique store because he is French. And Loic was always this guy like, wait, he speaks French and he runs like shearlings and sneakers and has the latest Blackberry. I mean, not then, that was a beeper era. Mm-hmm. And Loic then went on after we hung out to go to, I believe he went to Georgetown. And then kind of returned as like managing rappers. There was time Loic managed nice and smooth for a while. So Loic just keeps on popping up. And yeah. then we had not seen each other for a minute. And then we were always friends and then reconnected. And then he starts, you know, around the BBC days, working on BBC with Pharrell and managing Pharrell and I, I guess NERD. And Loic just keeps on popping up, but always stays like in the background. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I'm glad. I'm glad we've put him in the foreground for a brief moment. There's the the like Wikipedia yeah. entry. Okay, so we yeah, were talking. Sorry, I, I can do it better. I'll, I'll write <laughs> no. it up and you can. You no, can no, help no, me no, 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 not at all, not at all. But okay, so Pharrell. So like the thing is, it's yeah. a little bit different working with them because we all know each other, and it, you know, it's like it's not just like let's meet and we're going to bounce. Like oh, let's go to dinner. Or I'll catch you tomorrow morning or text or talk. We we all talk to each other. It's mellow. Connie has always been very nice to me, but he's obviously a complex individual to work with. I, I don't work with him right now. Whenever we see each other, he's more than friendly and we have a nice kind of, you know, small dialogue. And Tyler, when I bump into, super cool. I mean, obviously I haven't seen him in a minute due to COVID, but I'd be driving, you know, last time I saw him, I think I almost hit him in my car. I was driving down Beverly. He decided to jaywalk. So I was oh, like, boy. that's not good. But, uh, you know, they're very different. I mean, mm-hmm. Kanye has mega teams and ideas behind him. Pharrell keeps his team super tight. And then Tyler has a team that kind of works on golf and all that, that does a lot of the drawings and art for you. So each one's different. And they all look at product differently. It's definitely all something they want to make and something they want to wear. But, you know, I think they're all driven of what success means in different ways. So they're, they're all uniquely different people to work with, but, as you can imagine, I feel quite privileged that I've got to work in some capacity with three very uh, influential people. And to you said it was nice to be able to be, let's say, when I was 18, you know, not that I've ever done music or anything, but it's nice to see a Pharrell come and do his thing, a Connie do their thing, and Tyler, and be like, wow, people are really taking little things that a culture did and taking it to a much new perspective. So I find it very exciting. 
Yeah, the, the, the Tyler thing was really special to me, too, because it happened at Converse, and I feel like people didn't necessarily associate Converse with those type of deals. Were, were you kind of tasked with making that stuff happen inside of Converse? Was that kind of your purview there? It wasn't really, but it became that just due to when I got to Converse, uh, Julian Kahn was brought into the CMO, and he's been around Nike for all. We were actually old friends. Mm-hmm. And then Davide Grasso, who was the CMO at Nike, became the CEO at Converse, and they're like, you know, you're kind of good in this territory. Can you start creating some energy for the brand? And the first wins there were a neighborhood shoe, an undefeated shoe, a brain dead rocket, but like small wins, a Stussy shoe. And then it kind of started going and they all sold kind of well and it was starting to ripple up. Then the Tyler thing, they were like, yeah, go, go sign. We need the right asset. Mm-hmm. There were conversations of some other people, but Tyler was available. And I think he speaks to the consumer. Wait, which other people? Uh, just other people that they would have liked to get, but for various <laughs> reasons, either we couldn't afford or they weren't interested. And then we worked with Nast a bit. We, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just started trying to get a bit of a, a collective. Paul, uh, another person that, you know, close friends with that also did shoes with Converse is Virgil. I know you like you talking about getting to sit front row at, at his fashion shows. I remember you were one of the first people actually to receive one of the signed uh Virgil shoes I think he gave you a, a blazer he gave me a blazer and a Jordan the blazer said air converse and the Jordan said air free speech yeah I remember that air free speech yes I guess that's due to my uh witty Instagram posts that I'm usually progressing some kind of agenda but uh <laughs> yeah it, it was quite nice I mean Virgil did a great job on those shoes and he and over time he figured out which magic marker doesn't fade <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember getting those at the time and thinking that they were going to be as big of a deal as that they've become you know, at this point? I, I didn't. I had every inkling to think, but I didn't think it would go to the level it did. Not mm. that I thought it wouldn't. I wasn't doubting Virgil or Nike's ability to do something, but that just was like, oh, wow, this is big. Mm. Were you still around at Converse when the see-through pair eventually did come out? Because I remember that one in particular, there were so many delays around it, and it was such a long Yeah, the first away. one, had we had some problems with the vulcanized meeting that mesh. It was yeah. burning. So it did finally come out, and then we did the second one that had the lines, right. you know, the more off-white kind of one, and then that was it. I'm, I'm not sure what they're working on now, to be honest with you, even, even if they are. Yeah, I, I'd love to hear that story, though, like you said, about the production being a little bit of a difficulty because it speaks to the extent to which Virgil is trying to change items or make them look different from their I think no one saw it coming because a lot of the the materials that he used that shoe for the Nike ones wasn't a vulcanized process so it was a cup sole or something glued together so it didn't affect that mesh when the heating happened it actually kind of uh, I don't want to say it broke it but it let's say degraded it enough so it wouldn't pass wear testing Mm -hmm. and at some point someone figured it out yeah Are, are you are you paying attention to like production like that well, that one, we just, you know, no one knew. I mean, some of the people that worked on it from design development, like this could go bad, but until you get a pair on someone's feet and you wear them a bit, you just don't know what can go wrong. I think that's what's interesting about footwear is people forget that you have to test them at some point. Are you paying attention to stuff like that? Like, do you go to footwear factories in, in your many roles over the... I have before. I don't go as much as I used to. I, I mean, I, I'm sure coming up oh, in the future, I'm sure I'll travel again. I'm in no rush to, but... Uh, normally with the design thing, I'd send design team to go because they're hands-on. Mm-hmm. I'd go if I had to, but it seems, you know, with 
certain travel and things and trying to maximize a budget, you're like, who should go to the factory? What developer should go? What designer should go? What product people should go? And then if you don't need to be there, let other people go and, you know, you do Zoom. You do what was a Zoom call before a Zoom call at night and go through things or read long-winded emails to go through everything. Mm-hmm. But you want the experts in the room for that. Well, I know, I know you were also at Converse when Don C., did the collaborations as well on the on the eighties basketball shoes? Do you were you involved in those projects? I wasn't that involved in that project. I was involved. We did an LA thing where it was Rocket, uh, I want to say Brain Dead, RSVP Gallery, and uh, Babylon around the All Star Game. We worked on that together. The project he did around those the uh, what was it the uh, ERX, I believe it was. Yep. Yeah. That was more of an inline thing. So it was, it was handled by the inline team. I was around at the meetings, but I wasn't that involved. I'm actually seeing Don for lunch in two hours. So oh, nice. Handle yeah. that conversation. Give him our best. Yes. Yes. And then, Paul, you go back to Adidas and talk about the, the difference basically in the role from, from the first stint to the, to the current stint. And what that entails in, in terms of like product and things like that. And, and, um, you know, I, I mean, saw- I'm not that, you know, I, I started about a year ago, right before COVID started. Mm-hmm. And that was really, uh, the people that brought me back were more in entertainment and influencer marketing. I believe that's what it's still called. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to help out with some relationships because I didn't, I don't want to get, I'm kind of happy sitting outside companies and just giving my support. Mm-hmm. There is conversation. Maybe one day I'll go back in a year or two if, if things kind of, if there's a space for me and it's the right time in my life, but it was really just asked to help a lot around the Pharrell stuff. And then COVID happened. So everything, you know, unfortunately slowed down this year. Now we're starting to pick up again. So I'm really there to, I guess you'd say I'm more of a translator to try to help the teams know what the external party would like to achieve. And then also try to help the external party know what the business goals are. So it's just kind of being a conduit of information and a trusted a trusted person that you can talk both directions and try to help both people's agendas or ultimate goals. I feel like you're the ultimate person for that in in this case, because as we've seen in talking about your resume over the past few decades, you you just know everybody in the industry. So you're already connected. So you were talking about helping brands understand things like, do, do you ever think about that long, long journey that you've been on and how you can Somebody like Loic, who you knew in the late 80s or early 90s, and you're now still working with those same friends on projects. I mean, it's. I do think about it sometimes. I feel like a lot of myself and my friends and even meeting you all now, and I'm sure we know a lot of people, it's just nice to be still part of something. Yes. I feel remarkably privileged. And it wasn't a plan. I mean, I was just a kid that fell into it, but I'm still very inspired. I, I don't design stuff like I did, but I love to see what other people are doing. And now I try to, I mean, it's, it might sound a bit sappy as I'm a little bit older and have my own kid. I'm just trying to help people now. Because, I mean, obviously, when you grow up, especially in New York, you're a little bit cocky and obnoxious. And you're like, dude, I'm out for myself and my crew. And you, you go through things and you, you, you lose friends and gain friends. Now it's just a bit of time, I think, to help people. Because, I mean, what we've collectively experienced between the people you've mentioned and yourselves and our age, our ages and people a bit older, younger, we have a lot to give that, you know, people aren't seeing the same way due to they're not traveling the same, the stores and clubs and things that we used to look at might not exist. So it's, I think it's well worth it to share back collectively what everyone's learned. Uh, Cause if not, where does this all go? 
Yeah. Does it surprise you at all that, you know, you obviously have close friendships with people like Eddie Cruz from Undefeated Mm -hmm. and Chris Gibbs from Union that all these years later that, you know, those names have endured, but they're still like kind of at the hype center of this whole sneaker universe for a whole new audience and generation of kids? You know, I'm not surprised. I think the people that you just mentioned are really nice, creative, honest people that have done a lot of hard work in, in different parts of their life. They weren't just given something. I mean, I remember when Chris used to work at Union on Spring Street. Then again, I remember when Eddie worked at Union on Spring Street. It's just, as I said, it's nice to see that people are coming along. You know, it's sometimes you're bummed that you're like, wow, you remember that person? They were so good. What happened to them? And then maybe you kind of see them again or it recovers. But I'm not surprised, really. How do you feel about the recent Stussy collabs with the with Nike, the Harat the Harachi classic that was returning the Air Force Ones? I think they're clean. I think they're nice. Yeah, even like the one that I really like, the spirit the spirit on cage one yeah. was was really good. I think they're doing good stuff. I think Stussy's in good form right now. Are you surprised at the resurgence? You spoke about it a little bit earlier, but I feel like you know there was a moment there where Stussy was quite quiet, but in the past three years, they have so much more attention on them. You know, I think they have a good team in place now. I think after some time that that I left and then Nick left and it got a bit it got a bit sleepy and I think they rebuilt a team and a, a kind of new aesthetic. I think they're doing really good stuff right now. I mean, I I, I do talk to the guys at the shops. And I talk to Eddie. He says the store is doing really well. So I've, I've yeah. heard nothing but good things about the brand. I have to go back to the drawing of the 750 on the napkin. At any point, we talked about Virgil. How you were like, oh, this thing, you know, this thing could be big. Once, once you saw it, when he's draw, when Kanye's drawing the seven fifty on the napkin, can you? Did you think that this guy could be a billionaire off of? I didn't see him draw it. I just saw it stuck okay. on a, a white uh, a foam core board, and I was like, I got to find the picture somewhere. It's like one of the hundred thousand pictures on my phone. You know, I, of course, I thought he can do it because I mean, look, you know, I think people forget what he did at Nike. And then what mm-hmm. he did at Louis Vuitton, I mean, he, he did it never. I mean, obviously, there's a team of people to unpack his ideas. But, you know, not long before, like, hey, let's go see Watch the Throne. And you're like, wow, the shoes are glow-in-the-dark souls, which <laughs> seems kind of like, yeah, they're glow-in-the-dark souls. But it was like, that was insane. Yes. yes. At the was, time. Those, were, those were good shoes. I mean, not yes. my sensibility, to be honest with you, but, like, those were amazing. And I think... A lot of people, you know, we talk about the lines now. I think some people forget that that even happened not that long ago. I mean, right. It wasn't 20 years ago. Right. Like eight, nine, 10 years ago. Which in our time period sounds like 100 years ago. You're like, <laughs> wow, was that Yeezy done in, you know, 1922? You're like, no. Yeah. I'm like, I forgot that you'll know the year, but yeah, it's amazing how it's progressed. Yeah. And even if you go back, like Pharrell's BBC shoes at Reebok, mm-hmm. those were actually pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Papers and ice cream and shit on shoes. They were great. Definitely. And I think the younger consumers forgotten any of that even happened. Which is crazy. That's yeah. Which I appreciate when like take someone like a young Lil Yachty has a crazy closet. He's big fan of like all those older silhouettes. And it's really good to see like someone like him opening it up to these younger kids. Like, listen, this stuff existed and it was really dope. And Kind of, it it stands up when you're looking back at it. Yeah, and I guess I just to move to the to the present. I have to say I'm quite. It's quite nice to be back working with Adidas. I mean, I juggle some other clients outside of the sneaker industry, mm-hmm. so it's keep me busy. But it's nice to be. It's it's kind of fun to be back there. It's a good group of people, and they're 
making good product. And so it's a, it's quite pleasant just to be when you never think something would come back. And you're, I, sometimes I sit there, I'm like, wow, they, they brought me back. It's kind of cool. <laughs> it's, it's quite nice, actually. Because they didn't have to, you know, they could have been like, hey, screw you, you're out. And they're like, oh, will you help? I was like, really? You want me to help? I'm like, awesome. Where do I sign? Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's important, too, because you do realize sometimes I think it is nice to leave a brand or something because you realize when you go back how many friends you made and things that you take for granted when of you're course. there. Of course. So sometimes I think leaving is the best thing to do to maybe come back one day. Uh, Paul, I saw uh, an old tweet of yours. I think it was from like 2011. And it's kind of funny to kind of sum this all up is that you said one of the best things about the 90s is that you didn't have to talk about the sneakers that were on your feet. You didn't because you know what it was? It was like that, you know, that Bobito quote, like, where'd you get those? Or not quote mm-hmm. the name of the book. That sure. was growing up. You're like, you went. I lived in lower, I lived on the Upper West Side than downtown and you'd walk to the subway and you're like, you know, say it was a Foot Locker or a whatever, fill in the blank footwear shoe store. And I remember a funny, interesting story. I was living uptown. I was going to work at Time Cafe and I was stopped on 8th and Broadway in a cab. I was running late and I looked in the window and I was like, I saw these faded shoes with yellow. The cab, I was like, dude, stop the cab. So I get out, I run in they're the Air Max 95s. And wow. I was like, these are next level. And no one really had them then. And it was mm-hmm. the first ones with the little, like the names and shit on the back bubble. And I was so happy, but it was like one of those moments of like, I had no idea what they were. No one told me to get them. I see no one wearing them. It was literally cab, jump out, have to have those. And those are really the moments I miss, whether it was any store. And obviously there were great stores out in Fulton Mall and Delancey Street and 42nd Street and Uptown. But those moments of going to a sneaker store and being like, I have to get those. They just spoke to you. And it was the same with records or books or things or clothing. And that those were the most informative years of my life were just having that real kind of digging in the crates, going all over the city to pick up stuff. And you didn't talk about it with your friends. You're like, it wasn't like, yo, check out what I got. Like now, like, it wasn't like you put on Instagram, like, dude, check out how right. cool my shit is. It was like <laughs> someone who saw you that night and you're like, well, wow. they didn't even say anything. You just, you just looked at someone's shoes and you're like, all right, you win tonight. <sighs> it was an unspoken kind of thing. Yeah. And the same as back then, like DJs, you, they put taper over their records. You didn't want to know what someone was playing. There was right. a little bit of mystery. You know, I guess in a way it was pre-marketing. Yeah. And maybe you saw your friend wear them and you secretly were like, I'm going to pretend I didn't see you wearing them, but I'm going to go grab them tomorrow. Yeah, definitely. Try and figure out somehow (laughs) what that was. Yes. And I will give credit because the first person I saw where the Michigan dunks was Dante Ross. And I had to have them. Okay. Yeah. And he was skating. I remember, well, he was skating one night on Varick Street. I was walking up to go to Nell's and Dante was just skating. He lived on Canal at the time. And I was like, oh, wow, those are dope. (laughs) <laughs> a few days later, I had to get him. Don't publish that. I don't think he knows that story. Okay. <laughs> uh, Paul, listen. Dante always did have the best sneakers, though. Paul, we can't thank you enough. This is this has been like amazing to hear your story. And we only tip, tip of the iceberg of your story. But yeah, we'll do part oh, two next year. Definitely. Two and so, three and four. Yes. And if you get to LA, we'll go to the beach and get tacos. Absolutely, man. It's been a pleasure to chop it up with you and, and meet meet with you virtually and and can't thank you enough this was awesome so thanks so much for taking no, the thank time. you all for having me it's great to finally i'm a fan of what you all done i secretly watch all of them so i'll be embarrassed to watch myself in a few weeks we it's gonna be great it, all right thank you all have <laughs> a great for, day thank, thank you, you so Paul. much man Bye. stay safe 
Our producer is Dave Matthews. Our associate producer is Jasmine Plata. Sound engineering done by Kyle Garvey. Special thanks to Jennifer Stewart and Shiva Bayet. The Complex Sneakers Podcast is a production of the Complex Podcast Network. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.